Good morning to you. Have you ever wondered how we're supposed to worship Jesus? It's such a basic question that many of us never even really bother to ask it. Christians gather together on Sundays at a worship service. Some people are going to gather today at a building they call a a worship center. Many will be led today by by worship leaders. If you read our bulletin, you're going to see there's a whole bunch of worship supposed to be happening. It says we're going to worship through praise. We're going to worship through prayer. We're going to worship through informing. We're going to worship through giving. We're going to worship through connecting. And right now it says we're supposed to be worshiping through the Word, or at least we're going to attempt to do so. That's a lot of worship. Did you know the Bible uh, uses the word worship, or one of its cognates, about 240 times in Scripture? That's about 100 times more than the word grace. And think of how central grace is to our faith. And so, and so worship is absolutely central to what we are to do. The question is, what specifically are we to do when we worship? And that's our question for this Sunday and next. This Christmas, we've been looking at the Magi's visit. Uh, Two weeks ago, we looked at the three groups mentioned in Matthew chapter 2 and how each of those groups responded differently to the birth of Christ. Uh, We saw how arrogant and insecure people will attack Jesus, as Herod did. We saw how some people who should probably know better just ignored Jesus, as the chief priests and the teachers of the law did in Matthew 2. And lastly, we saw that wise people worship Jesus, as the Magi did in Matthew 2. So the question for us today is, if if wise people still worship Jesus, how should we do that biblically this Christmas? Do we do do it willy-nilly? Do we do it however we fancy? Or does God's Word offer God's counsel when it comes to worshiping God's Son? Thankfully, Matthew 2, in one chapter, gives us nine principles, nine biblical, practical principles to help guide our worship of Jesus as we head into Christmas. And so, this Sunday, let's endeavor to discover the first four of those nine practical, biblical principles in our worship of Christ this Christmas. If you turn with me in the Word of God to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Now, if you don't have a copy of Scripture, reach out in the pew in front of you, and there should be a blue pew Bible next to the hymnal. And if you turn to page 1026, I'm cautiously optimistic that will take you to Matthew 2. Sometimes I have a moment of dyslexia in that. And as we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together today. Father, we come to you asking that you would help us to be more biblical and practical and specific in our worship of Christ this Christmas, but also throughout the coming year. Lord, as we come to a passage that uh, we've heard many times before, we've heard children say it, we've had uh, times where we've sung about it as we peer into the Magi's visit of Christ, We pray that you would open our hearts to new truth. That this Sunday, something said from this sermon would be used as a tether point, much like a hiker goes up a mountain. 
that you would strike it deep in the rock and so that we are able to grab on and hold on. And should we lose our footing, should the winds become too much, may, may we be able to be anchored to that tether point and return to worshiping you in biblical, practical ways when it's easy to be distracted by many other things. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So the Word of God says in Matthew chapter 2, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now remember, these are the Magi. These are those Medo-Persian sort of uh, uh, religious and uh, uh, kingmakers in the east. and, And they have probably had intersection with uh, biblical characters such as Daniel. Uh, They were the the people in the inner circle of the Medo-Persian Babylonian empires, and yet they live way over in Mesopotamia, and they see this star, and, and they're star readers, and they see something special. This is an omen of a great king. For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king, now not really a king, Herod is the governor. He's been given the title king. He's an idiomian. He's a usurper. He's a lackey. He's a stooge of the Roman government. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled because he wanted to be the chief honcho. And all of Jerusalem with him because they feared the wrath of Herod. They're insanely jealous. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Because remember, Herod's an idiomian. Herod is not a Jew. Herod doesn't know the Jewish Scriptures forwards and backwards, but the chief priests do, and they don't miss a beat. And so they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." And so then Herod summoned those wise men secretly and ascertained from them uh, at what time the star had appeared. And when did you first see this star? And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. But he had no intention of doing such thing. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star which they had seen when it rose, it went before them, and until it came to rest over the place where the star was. Now, stars don't typically do that, do they? But in the hand of God, the star brought them to the Son of God, the king given by God. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod and report where the boy was, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took his child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Again, that would seem to be impossible. How was he born in Bethlehem and yet out of Egypt? You see those two prophecies and you go, well, those couldn't possibly be fulfilled. But but God knew exactly how they'd be fulfilled. And he would even use the wicked deeds of wicked men to fulfill his word. 
again and again. Don't forget that when wicked men seem to be winning and grinning in our society. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked for the Magi, did not tell him where the baby was. He became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in the region who were two years old or under according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men from when they had saw the star. And that was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children and she refused to be comforted because they are no more. So that's the story and you've heard it. You've heard little children stammer and stumble through it, I'm sure. Uh, the first thing we see in regards to wise people worshiping Jesus is number one on our outlines today. Uh, wise people seek after Jesus and they encourage others to do the same. Now that's so obvious we might miss it, but I don't want you to miss it this Christmas because it's the essence of Christmas. Wise people seek after Jesus and they encourage others to do the same. Look at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east, they came all the way to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born of the Jews? For we saw his star, and we have rose to come to worship him. These wise men, the Bible says, well, they sought out Jesus. They left the comforts of their homes back in Persia and Mesopotamia and sojourned all the way to Judea for one reason, to seek and savor the Savior. In addition to their own efforts to do so, don't miss the fact that these wise men in coming to worship Jesus, they were going to invite others implicitly by their asking when it came to worship Jesus. They were, by their enthusiasm about Jesus, they were inviting others come and investigate and celebrate. Because wise people not only seek after Jesus, they encourage others to do the same. Two Sundays ago, when we were last together, we spoke about the tense of the verb in verse 2, and it, and, and it has importance to our text today. The Bible tells us, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, behold, wise men came from the east in Jerusalem, verse 2, saying. And if you read that in the Greek, saying is the Greek word legontes. And it's a present active participle. It means the Magi were continuously saying. They were running into everyone that they could meet in the vicinity and saying, where is the one born king of the Jews? And they asked it to the merchant, and they asked it to the trader, and they asked it to the soldier, and they asked it to the blind person, and they, whoever they ran into, they asked it, and they asked it, and they asked it, and they asked it. And by this bold asking, there was an implicit encouragement to be interested in Jesus as well. Why would these rich, powerful, kingmaker foreigners come with a retinue on camels with soldiers and servants from such a long distance with one query, where is the king that has been born? Now, we do this today. We go to the movie theater, right? You go to the multiplex and there's the, the bored kid that's trying to get your phone to scan right and the thing won't work. And you know, You've done this, right? used to be really easy. You'd say, I want one of those. They give you one of those. And now you've got to take your phone and it's got to find out, oh, you need to do a web update. And it's really awesome, isn't it? It's a great experience. Technology making our life easier. And uh, those of you under 30 are like, works fine for me. Well, the rest of us don't feel the same way. But anyway, you go to the ticket counter and, and you tell the guy, you know, we're here to see the new Avengers movie. 
And the other 50 people are all here to see the new Avengers movie. And for some reason, that kid just started his job, and he didn't know he lived in a closet. He was yesterday Amish, and now he works at the theater. I don't know how it happened. But nonetheless, he's going to hear so many people say, we've come to see the new Avengers movie. Have you seen it? That, you know what? He's going to be encouraged to do what? To go see that movie. That something is exciting about that particular movie. That you need to go to theater 12 because something exciting is happening. In like manner, this Christmas, as you and I seek after Jesus, we ought to have that same kind of inviting, implicit enthusiasm. It's contagious. And yet, ironically, at His own birthday... Many times Jesus is the only one not invited. In all the hubbub of the holidays, Jesus can easily become an afterthought. Therefore, this Christmas, the advice of James 4.8 is very, very, very true for me and you. It's especially pertinent around Christmas. James 4.8 says, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Draw near to God this Christmas, and He will draw near to you. As you seek Jesus, I want to encourage you to have the kind of enthusiasm that encourages others to do the same. You can do things like grab some tracks from our racks up here or downstairs. When you go out the door, there's these track racks. You can take some of those, and you can share them. You can go to the diner, and after dinner, after you leave a generous tip, because no tip in a track doesn't equal Christ. <laughs> okay? Let me just do the math for you. Yes, you're giving them the most valuable thing ever. They don't quite understand that yet, so give them something they understand is valuable so they'll read the thing that is valuable. And you ought to have an exchange with your server that points them to the Savior. If you're the kind of person that walks into the diner and they go, oh, I've had one of those days, and they see you, and you're a regular, and you're a local, and they go, wow, I'm glad he's at my table today. If you have those kind of exchanges and then you leave the truth of Jesus in a generous tip, I wonder what Jesus might do with that if we did something with him. Uh, take one of those tracks and you all have to get gas. <laughs> and there's in New Jersey, somebody has to fill your tank. In every other state, we don't have this opportunity. But in New Jersey, there's a guy in a box, cold, all the way down to his socks, and you can say, Merry Christmas, and hand him a track. And you know what I've found? They always take it. And I've found some of them that take it, leave it in that little penalty box booth they sit in. And they, the next guy comes in with nothing to do. And he reads that track. And I've given that track at the same station. And I've had people go, I've already read this. It's over here. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there is, if it isn't possible to be a gas station attendant in the driving distance of Calvary Church without having the opportunity to read every track we ever put out? But you got to say Merry Christmas and hand it out. The point is, as you seek after Jesus, encourage others to do the same. This will not happen if we are accidental about it. We have to be intentional about it. Which brings us to point two on our outlines. Number two, we must intentionally take the time to worship Jesus this Christmas. We must take the time to worship Jesus. The Bible says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east all the way to Jerusalem. 
saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Friends, if you look at a map, that means the Magi traveled over 6,000 miles from the Mesopotamian basin all the way up to the hill country of Jerusalem. It was uphill, and it was 6,000 miles. And they did this for one reason, to worship Jesus. This was a costly journey. It was an arduous journey. It was an inconvenient journey. It would take in many, many months to travel by camel, and that's almost certainly how the Magi would have done it. They, they bore great costs to worship Jesus, and, and so too must we actively seek after Jesus, because worship will never happen by happenstance. We're never going to worship by coincidence. We have to be very intentional. Or it won't happen at all, will it? The reality is, it takes intentionality or we will fail to worship Jesus entirely. Any day that you don't intentionally set apart for Christ, you will go to bed and probably have functionally neglected Christ. Amen? The year is almost over. You have a new year ahead of you. Don't worry about before. Look at what's ahead. But think of all the days that you could have spent in praise but you missed it because that guy cut you off and the TPS form had coffee on it and your boss wanted it in earlier and you you'd follow? You, you have to be intentional or you will miss the opportunity. The many miles the Magi traveled, it cost them precious time. They only had the same resource that we had. They had 24 hours in their day. They had 365 days in their year. Uh, they had a lifespan that's probably shorter than the number that we will get. And yet they invested this time on this arduous, long journey. And it's time they could have spent advancing their careers. It's time they could have spent doting on their families. It's time they could have spent just having that me time that we spend so productively watching shows on Netflix and go, that was terrible. Uh, and yet the Magi, they really demonstrate how wise they were. They made the deliberate decision to pause from every lesser pursuit and they took the time to worship Jesus. They invested the time because worshiping Jesus will not happen on autopilot. You and I, every day, have to make the conscious decision to take the time, to carve out the time, to invest the time in worshiping Jesus Christ. Every day, we're going to decide things like, I'm going to spend time in His Word or I'm going to hit snooze. And then there's no time if we're the type that do that first thing in the morning. And we must decide whether we're going to commune with Jesus in prayer or if we're going to tune out the world by turning on our tunes during our commute. You can do either one. On the train, in the car, you can talk to Jesus or you can tune out from everything. But only you get to make that choice. Every day, we're going to decide Many things. On Sunday in particular, on Sunday we get to decide whether we get to, to struggle to pour Cheerios into and snow boots onto our little people so we can worship Jesus together. Or whether that battle is just a bit too much for us this day. Sometimes it's tempting when the weather outside is frightful and the fire is so delightful not to bother with all the bundling up and trundling off and we end up missing the opportunity to worship Jesus on the Lord's day. It's easy. It's easy to miss. 
And so when the laundry piles up, and it will, the first rule of laundry is it's never done. <laughs> when the laundry piles up, when the project at work is due, when those TPS reports are now due, when, when the kids have a concert, we're going to have to make the deliberate decision to take time to worship Jesus. Because if we don't, the day will end, and we won't. And it's not because we're unwilling. It's because we didn't prioritize the Lord Jesus. From now until Jesus returns, you and I are going to face a certain crisis of faith. And it will be this. It will be this every day that ends in why until you go to be with Jesus. Will I take the time to worship Jesus or will I let something lesser fill my calendar? And that battle is every day for you and me. There's always something. But friends, Jesus is everything. Wise people take the time to worship Jesus. Laundry, leftovers, and last week reruns can wait. But Jesus shouldn't have to. Now sometimes, it's not time that holds us back from worshiping Jesus. It's fear. We're ready to take the time. We're ready to invest the time. We're not even thinking about time. It is fear that keeps us from worshiping Jesus. In New Jersey, that fear is very rarely fear for our life. Had no one in New Jersey at the point of a spear or a gun tell me to stop talking about Jesus. Have you? But in New Jersey, it's the fear of ridicule, of rejection, of social ostracization, which apparently is hard to say out loud. <laughs> that brings us to our third point. We must not be ashamed to share our adoration for Jesus even with those who might be threatened by it. We must not be ashamed of Jesus. We must not be ashamed of our love for Jesus even if potentially someone somewhere could possibly not have that same enthusiasm for Jesus. We're often afraid to worship Jesus because someone, somewhere, might possibly be somewhat uncomfortable that we love Jesus. Should I pray before I eat at work? Well, you know, what would the boys say? And we're all doing these macho things and beams are going up and plumbing's happening and we were just talking about the game and I'm going to stop for... 14 seconds and thank Jesus that I have daily bread, that I have a job, that he's given me hands, that I can walk upright, that I'm not uh, stunted by paralysis, that I didn't get squished by a, another car that wasn't paying attention because they were texting something that wasn't urgent. But I don't want to do it, not because I'm not willing to take the time, not even because the Spirit isn't prompting me, but because I'm worried what the boys will think if I stop and thank the one who gave me my daily bread. Uh, yeah, some of you don't work in construction, that's okay. Works for you too. Should I read my Bible in my cubicle on my break? I'm not saying in the middle of your day when Caesar's paying you and you stop doing what you're... But I'm saying when you have your time, should you read your Bible in your cubicle when you're on break? Because the thing stopping you is you're wondering what Mary from accounting will think if you pull that Bible out of your drawer and read for a minute. Sadly, we are too often too ashamed to worship Jesus because we think someone, somewhere, could possibly be threatened by it. 
But I want you to notice how differently wise men view that same conundrum. The wise men, the magi, they knew that Herod had a title. And what was it? King of the Jews. They knew he wasn't Jewish. They knew the Jews didn't like him. They knew they didn't receive him as king of the Jews. And so in going to Jerusalem, which was the headquarters for the false king, and in looking for Jesus and continually asking everyone with, with bated breath and unbounding enthusiasm, where is the Christ? Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? They knew they were wise men. They knew exactly the position this would put them in. And someone was going to feel threatened because they were worshiping. The notoriously suspicious and insanely jealous Herod would lose his cool over this quest, wouldn't he? This stir being caused by a great entourage of foreign kingmakers walking through his capital looking for their one true king. Friends, if anyone ever had a reason to avoid worshiping Jesus out of fear of offending someone else, I think it's the Magi in our story. It was certain Herod would be threatened. And yet the Magi not only sought out Jesus, but when they were confronted by Herod about their intentions, they didn't waver for a moment in this endeavor. The Bible says in verse 7, Herod summoned the wise men. They had to come. He was in charge. He had the authority. He had the power. He had the soldiers. They were guests in a foreign place. They were summoned. They were not asked. And the wise men were summoned secretly. And Herod ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, well, Go and search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring word to me that I too may come and worship him. But he intended no such thing. And if they were wise, they probably had inklings of that. Later the Spirit would tell them that with divinity, and they will go in another vicinity to go home. But interestingly, though the Ragi risked ridicule, perhaps even their very lives, in sharing their clear reason for this long trip, God spared their lives. God spared their lives. Herod didn't spare. He would kill children. Some magi from a place that once took away his power, if you remember from our last sermon, uh, uh, there were these uh, Parthenian invaders that at one point took away his power when he ruled Galilee. And now there were these Parthenians, and he has the opportunity to smash them. But God spared those men. See, friends, often our fears of what will happen to us if we pull out our Bible and listen to Jesus on our break in our cubicle or when we stop and we bow our head and thank him for our daily bread, often our fears of what will happen are mostly just fears. Fears. I found when I was in the Marines, the more consistently and stridently and lovingly I stood for Jesus, the less people tried to make it hard. And the more I was lukewarm with any unit, anywhere I was ever deployed, the harder it became to stand for Jesus. And the more they would put the pressure to conform. But when I said, I'm gonna, here's my stand and I will go no other, they respected that. Atheists respected that. Skeptics respected that. Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, they respected that. You know what they didn't respect? A wishy-washy faith. And they pressed for me to be like them. Friends, fear is a powerful paralyzer. It can quickly pour cold water on hot worshipers, can't it? Fear. In this, we do well to remember those who faced fear in other contexts. 
FDR at his inauguration as the nation faced the Great Depression. He famously and courageously said, we have nothing to fear but... You've heard that one. But if we dwell on our fears, fears can erode our faith, can silence our witness, and it can end our worship on a functional, practical level in that moment. Winston Churchill, facing the Nazi blitz, the the bombing of Londoners into bits, he said, fear is a reaction. Courage is a decision. Fear is a reaction. Courage is a decision. And then he urged his people to keep calm and carry on. As a Christian, you're going to have moments when you're afraid Will me stopping to pray, will me sharing about Christ, will me reading the Bible, will me whatever honors Jesus in that moment as the Spirit is prompting, you're going to have a fear. Is this going to be threatening to someone? And you're going to face this crisis of faith. My encouragement to you is keep calm and carry on for Jesus. Jesus understood this. What was the most frequent command of Christ? We talked about it in a previous sermon. Out of all the commands, it wasn't stop sinning, don't commit adultery, give more money. It was fear not. Jesus looked out at his sheep that he died for, that he loved, at his bride that's full of blemish and stain, and he's going to make white and bright and beautiful. And he said, hey guys, fear not. The apostles had a holy boldness when they were told to be silent. They went and they healed a man. And nobody could deny it. Read Acts chapter 4 when you go home. And they went and they healed a man. And, and, and they were brought in for healing the man. And everyone could see that the man was healed so they couldn't deny the miracle. And, and they said, well, you know, how did you do this? And he said, well, the one that you killed, that Jesus, Jesus, it was faith in Jesus that healed this man. And they went, shut up. About Jesus. And they threatened him to be beaten, to be incarcerated, to eventually be killed. And the disciples prayed for boldness. And they went on talking about Jesus. Fear is a stupid thing to let you stop from worshiping the king, amen? In fact, being paralyzed by our fears is a sign of our immaturity. A veteran soldier is still afraid in combat. I've never heard soldiers say they're not afraid under fire. And yet, the veteran soldier overcomes his fear and he engages the enemy. And that is how every great battle in the history of the world has ever been won. Because fear is a reaction and courage is a decision. Friends, championship teams, baseball, football, whatever you like, a championship team may be afraid of losing the big game in front of all the watching world. But the championship team will take the field nonetheless. And they will do their very best because in order to win, you have to play. I don't know what God will do with you as his providentially placed missionary in your environment. But I know that if you shine for him, he has every opportunity. And when we hide him, we hide our lamp under a bushel, there's no opportunity. The Bible teaches that there may well be times when we become afraid to worship Jesus openly. 
We become afraid to offer our our praise or our prayer or our proclamation because we are afraid of what someone might do or say. Here's a great verse in those times. It's 1 John 4.17. Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Instead of cowering in a corner, let's worship with vigor. As Jesus encouraged us, he says, let's worship the Lord with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all our minds and all our strengths, even as we love our neighbor as ourselves. But God first, and our neighbor second. And a crucial but often overlooked aspect of wisely worshiping Jesus is found tucked away gently in verse 9. Verse 9 says, after listening to the king, they went their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until they came to rest over the place where the child was. And it's so subtle we can miss it. But the Magi pursued God's glory how? By following God's revelation. They pursued God's glory by following God's revelation. In their situation, the revelation was a star from the east. Which brings us to point four on our outlines today. Our final point, if we're wise in our worship of Jesus, we must pursue God's glory by following God's revelation as we seek to worship Jesus Christ. That's how we do it. We're searching for His glory by following His revelation. Now, while it's true that that genuine worship will often pierce our hearts, it will often rock our emotions, our goal in worship is not to work ourselves up into an emotional lather. There are some saints who have the byproduct as the goal. Good worship is when they have been worked into an emotional lather. I'm not saying good worship won't sometimes do that. I'm just saying that's not the goal of worship. The goal in worship is to pursue God's glory. We worship for Him, though we benefit. 1 Corinthians 10.31 puts this in perspective. It says, whether you eat or whether you drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. The most mundane thing you do, do it for the glory of God. And so it raises the question, are we seeking God's glory in our worship, or do we primarily seek our own amusement? Worship must not lose its focus of its purpose, and its purpose is to glorify Jesus not merely to entertain men. In seeking God's glory and not our own glory, that pursuit necessitates that we must pursue God's plan. He has written the manual of how to worship Him. It brings no glory to a father. So so let's think for a second, a human father, and he has a son. And he wants his son to be a success, and he nurtures and and provides and, and guides his son to be a success. And, and instead of going to Harvard, the son goes his own way and becomes the wealthiest and most successful drug dealer on the eastern seaboard. He's a success, but it brings no glory to the father. Are the successes we're shooting for the kind that bring glory to the father? Or are they something lesser? Maybe even something antithetical to what brings glory to the father. We have to follow God's plan if we're ever going to bring God glory. So where do we find God's plan? Well, simple. He must reveal it to us. 
And when God wanted the Magi to follow a plan to worship Jesus that would impact us 2,000 years later, He revealed Himself through a star. And it went from where they were to where they needed to be. And that's how they found Jesus. But you know what? You and I aren't Magi. Nobody with a turban. I didn't see any camels parked outside. It seems fairly clear. We are not Magi. We are New Testament Christians if we put our faith in Christ. And so we don't look to the stars for guidance. We look to the Scripture. The guiding, unbending, unchanging North Star that will always lead us with perfect clarity to exactly where God wants us to be in every minute of every moment that we'll ever walk with Him until we see Him face to face. God says in Hebrews 1, you open the book of Hebrews, the first thing it says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, He has spoken through His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. Now, where do we learn accurately, correctly, biblically, truthfully about God's Son? We learn about God's Son through God's Word. And so God's Word is an inexhaustible mind. It is a bountiful storehouse. It is the unending treasury of God's revelation to His people. The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Anybody's soul need reviving? You all came in here perfect. Everything was great. You have no problems. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I don't know what to do. The Word of God makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. We struggle to know what's right and what's wrong in our confused age. The Bible can tell us. And it can cause your heart to rejoice in an era of anxiety and pain. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. We can see clearly now. The rain is gone. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and, and righteous altogether. From Genesis to Revelation, you will always find the truth because Jesus says, Thy word is truth. More to be desired are they than gold, verse 10. Even much fine gold. Sweeter also than, than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Uh, to the psalmist, this was as good as it got. Gold was the most valuable thing and honey was the tastiest thing. There were no candy bars. Dentists had a hard time. The low sugar diet. And so as good as it got was gold and honey, baby. And it says in verse 10, according to the Spirit's movement of the psalmist's pen, more to be desired are the Scriptures than gold. Even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them is great reward. And the Word of God can put a fence that keeps you from that which will hurt you, and God rewards faithfulness. Not giftedness. Some of you have more gifts, but He grades on faithfulness. So it doesn't matter if you have 20 gifts or one gift. It matters what you do with that gift. Who was Jesus telling us he was more pleased with when they offered? The man who offered much 
from his much that cost him little? Or the one who offered little, but to her it was much? The widow's might, because God grades on faithfulness. We always look at people on giftedness. Are they pretty enough? Are they smart enough? Are they important enough? And God looks and goes, do they follow me with joy? Even when it's scary. As you and I seek to worship Jesus, it's imperative that we do it according to his word. If God says, worship me by making my church a house of prayer, then that's what we must prioritize. If God says, worship me by seeking and saving the lost, by by making disciples of all peoples, then we mustn't get so swept up in our programs and our performances, but rather we must keep to the main thing, which is telling people about Jesus and building them up in Christ and one another, one another, one another. Love one another. Forgive one another. Encourage one another. If God says, I want you to worship me by controlling your tongue, that's an easy one, right? And we must let the Spirit put a bridle on our tongue because where words are many, sin is not absent. If God says we must put our spouse before ourselves, then we must do that. But I'm pretty sure the world, the devil, and the flesh are going to tell you to put yourself first. We live in a me-first world in a God-first universe. Worship that glorifies God is worship that God reveals to us. He is God, we are not. He gets to call the shots, not us. Jesus is Lord. Jesus isn't just cosmic fire insurance. And as a living Lord, by definition, He's able to give directives to His subjects. He's King Jesus. Now, many worshipers go off the rails at this very point. The jihadist who blows up others in a school bus to worship God is in some ways very similar in his error to the Christian who tries to worship God by giving him lip service on Sunday and and nothing on Monday through Saturday. Because both of those people are worshiping God according to their own agenda instead of according to God's revelation. And so in our closing moments together, I'd like us, with every head bowed and every eye closed, to talk to the Father and ask Him to help us to worship Him better together. Father, please help us this Christmas to seek after Jesus and to be bright, shining ambassadors for You. Lord, would You make us into a perfume in the room exuding the joy of Jesus and let us not be a Grinch with a stench in the trench. May people not find when we're in the room that it's the pits but may they find Jesus on our lips and joy in our hearts, peace in our homes, Lord. People have these horrible one another experiences in the world. We were on a cruise, and if you can't be happy on a cruise, you can't be happy. And boy, there were some people a couple cabins away that were expressing that they were not happy. Lord, that's the world we live in. And you've invited us, blessed are the peacemakers. And sometimes that's just by showing them that there is a way to have peace in a world that's at war. 
Father, help us to take the time each day to peer into your life-changing word. Let it rapidly, robustly shape us more and more into the image of your precious Son. Help us in 2019 when the, when the little bookmarks come out in a Sunday or so to get farther through your word this year than we did last year. And to learn more each time, to not just let our eyes move across the page to tick a box, but Lord, help us to hear from you. For your word is more precious than gold and honey from the honeycomb. Father, may your perfect love cast out our fears. May you do for us as you did for the disciples in Acts 4 and enable us to be your servants to speak your word with great boldness. May we do so with the balance of Jesus who came full of grace and full of truth. Help us to be gracious with those who might be difficult. And help us to be truthful with those who are confused. Lord, I pray especially for those who are under anxiety and, and, and depression and, and the fog of the enemy that you would, you would speak to them from your word whether that's by listening to godly preaching through podcasts, whether that's by opening scripture, whether that's by having a one another moment in their small group, I pray, Lord, that we would one another well here at Calvary, that we would love one another, that we would encourage one another. At times, we would forgive one another. We pray, Lord Jesus, that this would be a place that always builds up, that we would speak what's useful for building others up according to their needs. Lord, we pray that your love would penetrate us and permeate those we come in contact. We ask this in the wonderful, powerful, beautiful name of Jesus, that you might be given all the glory and all the honor and all the praise in our transformation. Amen. Amen.